Welcome back to another Women's Champions League episode. A lot to catch up on, a lot to cover. We'll do our best as usual and hopefully it'll be good enough for everyone. I'm your host, Alexi Baceta, and I'm joined by Jesse Parker Humphreys and Abdul Abdullah to round up the first two weeks of the Women's Champions League group stages. Um, what did you two think of those two match weeks? Uh, Abdullah, we'll start with you. Fun. I think it was it was quite entertaining and I think the, you know, the quality that we kept talking about um, and the previews that we were doing, I think it came true. I think, I think with the exception of a couple of games, you know, the trounce things, I think the rest of the games have been really competitive and really good. And, you know, the, the level and quality that we were expecting and we wanted, I think, I think we've got it. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the rest of the group stages. Jesse, I'm enjoying it, but I do think we're kind of going down a route of maybe what was expected, you know, we kind of know which two teams are going to come top, which two teams are going to come bottom. And we're just waiting in most of those groups to see those top two teams play each other to figure it out. The kind of exception is, is group A, um, I guess, which is, which is a bit more interesting, but yeah, I like, I am enjoying it, but, and I'm looking forward to those like games, which I guess are still coming where it's the two really best teams going head to head. But at the same time, I still feel like the, one-sided results are still are still there if you want to look for them, aren't they? Yeah, at the end of the day, we'll get into it, obviously. Yeah, a bit disappointed some of the matches and kind of the underdogs not performing, I guess, perhaps maybe as much as we talk them up. Um, but I will say this, another week, just to add on to our, our WSL episodes, another week of a Manchester City not winning anything because they're not in the Champions League. Well, I'm actually going to have to correct you because no, the, the FA, Champions no, League. No, 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 does not count. <laughs> they um, sacked Willie Kirk sacked. That's what they did this week. That is that is true though. To be fair, um, ironically, the one manager that we weren't expecting or wanted to get sacked. But yeah, moving back to the Women's Champions League, everyone can go listen to our, our little rants about Gareth Taylor and Willie Kirk and Everton and, and everything in our WSL episodes. Um, but we're here to talk Women's Champions League. Obviously, a note to say that it's absolutely amazing. Yes, the zone, maybe I'm a bit biased. Maybe. I uh, hope everyone's enjoying my social media content. I think it's quite funny. I posted a, a meme of Pernille Harder the other day and she liked it. So I think that's a win for me. I don't care what anyone says. But yeah, it is it's it is really enjoyable. Like whether I work for them or not, it is really enjoyable to wake up in the morning, be able to just watch all the highlights from the Women's Champions League. It's amazing. You Google the, the matches and the highlights are there and then you can just watch whatever match you want again. But yeah, um, there's no real order of this podcast we tried the best we could to kind of put everything as fluidly as possible um we're gonna start talking about one match and move into the other teams of the same match if that makes sense you, you guys will pick up <laughs> we'll pick up um the order of it eventually um but yeah we won't cover all 16 matches for obvious reasons and that's obviously because you don't want to listen to our voices for two hours but yeah we'll, we'll roughly stick to the same teams that we talked about in our preview episode to kind of keep that momentum going but let's get right into it Barcelona 4, Arsenal 1. That was, it was, uh, we'll get into it. But yes, of course, Mariona scored, Alexia scored, Oshuala scored, Martin scored, and Frida Manum got her first goal for Arsenal, which happened in a very unfortunate scoreline for Arsenal. 
Um, but we've been all waiting, been waiting for that in the league, and it finally happened. And very underwhelming, but it's fine. She got a banger against Everton, so it's fine. It's fine. Um, but before we go talk about Barcelona, uh, Manuela Zinsberger, I think, deserves a shout out for managing to save Anelexia Potea's penalty because how rarely does that happen? And out of all keepers, Zinsberger got it. So good on her. Um, there's, there's, I mean, if I were her, I'd be buzzing about that. I mean, yes, the scoreline was 4-1, but you saved Alexia Potellas' penalty. I think that counts for a bit more than that. But yeah, overall, I think we can all say that Barcelona deserved a 4-1-1, uh, maybe even more, actually. But yeah, the first goal of the evening didn't happen until the 36th minute of the match. Mariona got a relatively easy tap-in um, following, I think, I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, it was an Oshuala shot. Really, I mean, just the easiest goal she'll ever get, just a simple tap-in after um, no one really followed the ball after that. Um, but Manam scored in the 74th minute to make it 3-1. And Arsenal, I think, got their hopes up for some reason. That I'm saying that as an Arsenal fan. I don't think... At any moment, they were ever going to win that match. Um, the way they were playing, they could have come closer than maybe they did, but winning it and taking all the points, uh, that's definitely not going to happen. Um, but Martin scored the fourth in 84th minute. And then obviously Zinsberger saved that shot and avoided La Manita um, to round it off to five. But Jesse, we, we talked about it a bit in our preview pod about how difficult this was going to be for Arsenal. Yes or yes. And he did admit this post-match. But do you think Jonas Eidevall got into this a bit too naively? Yeah, I was quite surprised when he said that he kind of underestimated Barcelona because I'm like, I get when we talk about maybe the British media underestimating Barcelona or Twitter underestimating Barcelona, but you're the manager of Arsenal. Like, you're really meant to check these things out. And everyone watched that Champions League final, no? Like, surely we know now that they're really, really good. I didn't get that. I thought it was really weird. I thought it was a really weird thing to admit, even if it wasn't true. I would not have been admitting that if I was him. Um, I was a bit surprised by like the lineup as well. I think there were, you know, I felt like someone like Tobin Heath, who I thought had a really good game actually when she came on. You know, we've kind of identified in the past that Barcelona's weakness probably maybe is those those fullback areas and having someone who I think is like a really good 1v1 attacker, I think could have helped Arsenal put a lot more pressure on them. Um, that being said, you know, Barcelona were just fantastic. Uh, the, the passing... <laughs> The rotations, like all of it, is just um, kind of amazing and hypnotic to watch. And I feel sorry for any player who has to play against this team. Um, but yeah, it, it did feel just like Arsenal. Well, Arsenal were just like totally blown away. Um, as you kind of touched on, Alex, this could have been so much more. I think Barcelona's XG was like 5.8. So it's like above five, even if you take the penalty out. Um, so... But honestly, they're just so good. I don't really know where the answers are. But again, that's why I'm not paid to be the Arsenal manager. And that's why I was surprised by Jonas saying what he said. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see in the reverse fixture whether he takes it a bit more seriously or estimates it a bit more accurately. Uh, but yeah, definitely a tough night for Arsenal. Yeah, I think the highlight of the night, I think I mentioned it in the WSL episode um, about how a journalist post-match asked him how Barcelona had 36 attempts on on goal and he was just bluntly like that's not that's not true like I don't know where you're getting your stats from but were you, like you weren't watching the same game that I was and all of us just like we, we didn't have the heart to tell him that that's actually those are like the actual stats and obviously he realized after and he 
ate a little bit of more humble cake after that. I do, I do admit the emotions probably got to him, but it was really interesting to see how shocked he was. I mean, it's fair enough, you know, the confidence that Arsenal had. Maybe they were expecting a bit closer game, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, just watch one game of Barcelona and you're going to know what they're about pretty much. But Abdullah, looking more on maybe the tactical side of this, obviously it was a really good football match to watch on a Barcelona angle. And yeah, I do agree that Tobin Heath did make a big difference for Arsenal, giving them that extra little push and extra little experience and confidence that I think they needed at that point in the game in particular. I mean, when you have someone like Caroline Graham Hansen who makes Steph Catley look like a joke, um, it's it gets a lot. You know, Steph Catley is, is, is a really, really good defender. And then Caroline Graham Hansen just went by her as if she was basically like playing a child or something. I mean that in the best way possible. Caroline Graham Hansen is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but Abdullah, where did Jonathan Hirales get this so right against a team like Arsenal? I think, um, yeah, no, I think, first of all, I think Barcelona were excellent all over the pitch. I think that's un- undeniable. Um, I think they really did dominate the game. But I think I think most one thing, I mean, it, with the exception of, like you said, Graham Hansen and, and the wide areas and Mariona, I actually think they did really well to take to kind of take advantage of the spaces that Arsenal left in midfield because, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of the balls that, that were being played in behind their defense uh, for Oshuala to run into, I felt like, you know, it was, you know, Patry and, and Alexia just had so much space and time to, to receive, turn and pass that it almost felt like, you know, they were, they just, they had the more time that that was actually necessary. And there were a few extra spaces here and there, which I think any other side might have taken an extra second to, to maybe make a decision to make that actual, like really threatening line breaking forward pass. But I think in, in, in Barcelona's case, they were so quick to get the ball from back to middle and then turn and just make that decision to pass forward, which not only let them have the space in midfield, but I felt like they were able to take advantage of Arsenal's seemingly higher line uh, that they were playing. I mean, there were times here, and, and I, I was just looking at the highlights of the earlier, there were times where they were almost near the halfway line. And just, you know, with the pace that they have and Oshuala's, you know, excellent positioning on the shoulder of the, the centre-backs, I felt like she was excellent all night. And I think she was one of the main causes of why Arsenal, you know, had so many issues because she just ran those channels really, really well. So I, I felt like that that space in midfield and Oshuala's kind of positioning on the sh- shoulder of the uh, of the defence, I think was was key for me. And I think that's where the quality was. Yeah, definitely. Oshuala particularly had a really good match. I think uh, she was exploiting a lot of the spaces in behind the defenders. Now, I just... <laughs> <laughs> this gif of Leah Williamson trying to head a cross and just looking like a floppy fish. I have to, I have to mention that because it's so, it's so unfortunate that it happened to like Leah Williamson because she's, she's just so, so good. But the gif in slow motion, you see just Leah just fully out like planking and then just like flopping on the floor. That is a mood. That is a mood. And I think that kind of describes how Arsenal were against Barcelona in one photo, one gif maybe. But yeah, I also do want, listeners to make fun of me because I asked Mariona a post-match question and I completely choked so yeah I'm just I'm putting that out there so I can have a, a good laugh um but yeah we'll, we'll focus a bit more on Barcelona their second match wasn't too successful compared to this one um yes they won 2-0 but it wasn't necessarily an easy one a nice one and there was a lot of rotation Alexia Aitana, Patri Jaro, Mapileon, Irene Paredes, Mariona they all weren't playing and that's just to say some it was a completely different back four completely different middle um Frido Rolfo who has been playing left back um and winger as we know she was deployed in that central striker role. It was the first time there. And then Yeni Hermoso is back and she's deployed in as a number 10 in the midfield. Um, so it's 
it wasn't the, the, the greatest performance, sort of say. Maybe it was because of the rotation. I mean, they still won, yes, but it wasn't ideal. Um, Barcelona's goal didn't come until the 60 second, uh, blah, blah. Sorry, guys. 62nd minute. And the second goal was from a penalty. Um, so not the most ideal performance from Barcelona, not the most convincing, especially what they showed against Arsenal. Um, but Jesse, we've seen Barcelona at their best and now we've seen them kind of at their worst in the opening two weeks. Is there any anyone, any team that can stop them this season? I don't think so. I think in this game, we kind of saw... A Barcelona that, I mean, Alex, you can probably speak to this more than I can, but I feel like sometimes you see in the league as well where they kind of like try something different and then stuff's like not quite clicking and then they either concede or they haven't scored for like a couple of minutes and then suddenly they just like wake up and they go on this flurry and then they're like, okay, yeah, we're Barcelona and the point is in 15 minutes they can like rip your whole team apart. And obviously they didn't score like loads here, but, you know, like, they were kind of always obviously like still going to get the win. I feel like the the opportunities were there and it was just a, a case of which ones went in, which they eventually did. Um, I think kind of ironically what Koga did is maybe what Emma Hayes thought Chelsea could do against them, which is like sit back, sit back and like break into the space that they leave as, as they then move on top of you. And Koga did kind of like have a couple of opportunities to exploit that, which they weren't really able to take. Um, so maybe that is like a bit of a, a pattern for teams to look at, but also this like Barcelona had so many caveats to it. I thought the Fridolina Rolfo, Jenny Hermoso thing was so weird and just should not be tried again. Um, but again, like this was like what that game was almost there for, for them to do, just like to try out stuff and it like it didn't really need to matter. So the short answer is no. I well, I I'm yet to see a side in this. Champions League competition that I think can defend well enough to keep out Barcelona, which I think is realistically what you have to be able to do. I mean, I think Lyon have had like a, a good start to the season, but I feel like I'm yet to see them like really, really tested defensively to to be able to to judge that. Um, so, you know, maybe in some of the games coming up, we might get a better idea of what their defence like actually looks like. But yeah, I'd say Barcelona are still runaway favourites at this point in time. Yeah, it has happened a lot in the league about what you mentioned, Jesse, about Barcelona kind of going a goal down. And then, I mean, it happened recently. They went a goal down. It was 1-0 and, and they ended up winning 9-1. So it does happen quite often where they get behind and they're like, oh shit, okay. And they kind of, for some reason, relax. And then, yeah, just bang out nine goals just like that. Um, but Abdullah, if you had to describe this Barcelona side to anyone who doesn't really know about them, how would you describe them? Um, poetry in motion, I think, would be the best way to to describe it. Just because the their play is so 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 silky smooth, so nice, so crisp that you know you just want to keep watching them. So I mean, I think that would be the the three word answer to to how I would describe them. But I think, um, you know, I think this team, like 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 you know, we've just said. I don't see anybody who can challenge them yet. And if you want to, and I think the other way you can put it is saying that they are setting the standard in the game right now. I mean, if you want to, like at the moment, the team to beat, the team to be, the team to aspire to beat like is, is Barcelona, not just in terms of um, their play style, but I think in terms of the their execution, their dominance, their, their sort of uh, flexibility and, and versatility across, you know, 
their players and their positioning and the, the way they've been able to execute all of their ideas, I think is, is a testament to not just the coaching setup, because we saw this execution last season under Luis Cortez as well. But I feel like because the structure and the hierarchy of the club is so well set, which is weird considering what's happening on the men's side of the game, um, is so well set that it almost feels like anybody can come in and they can do a job because the structure is so well set and the players are are kind of together and they've added one or two pieces and like Ingrid Engine and, and Frisnia Rolfo. But I think that's that's all they needed just to kind of sprinkle in a couple of players here and there. And then you kind of continue on doing the same thing, which I think I think we'll continue to see seeing this the squad, at least in most places, is relatively in their prime or or young. So yeah, those that's pretty much how I describe it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting like looking at looking at Wolves football, just from overall and kind of the clubs that have led it, obviously Leon were the club to beat for X amount of years. And that was just because the club gave the resources, they gave the money and they were able to bring in players and train them as fully professionals. Now they don't really have that vantage point anymore. Whereas like more clubs are now fully professional. They have the resources there, you know, there's some of the top facilities in the world. Um, but now Barcelona are kind of doing the same thing as Leon did in terms of being the leaders, but now they're doing it on a very tactical, technically and football aspect rather than just money and, and resources and everything. Um, so it's quite interesting to see kind of this new club take over the world of women's football and kind of lead it on a different aspect. And it's just, if the clubs keep doing that, you know, there's always going to be that one that kind of pushes everyone to, to be that much better. Um, obviously eventually women's football is going to keep growing and growing. And it's actually like, I realized that um, a couple of days ago and I thought of it that way and it just seemed really interesting. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to Arsenal for Hoffenheim zero. A good win for Arsenal and maybe a bit disappointing from a Hoffenheim perspective who, can I mention, beat Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga this weekend 2-1. A very unfortunate own goal by Lena Oberdorf. I have no idea what she was trying to do when she cleared the ball there. It was a corner. She tried to clear the ball and it just came off her knee or her shin pad or something. And it just obviously deflected into the goal. Um, I still stand by that. I want to be Lena Oberdorf when I grow up. Um, I still stand by that no matter what. Uh, but yeah, Jonas, I'd have all said after the ma- after the the match that this is the best that Arsenal have played. Maybe from his perspective, it's because they did everything that he asked them to. I don't think it was the most fluid and impressive that we've seen Arsenal this season, at least on my perspective. Um, I think Jesse started grumpiness was grumpy about that when when Jonas said that. So I think Jesse Jesse agrees. Abdul, I don't know about you, but yeah, a, a few things to point from this game. Jordan Nobbs was back in the starting 11 and that meant that Jordan became that high attacking midfielder and Kim Little had to drop back a little bit. Um, And we all know that Kim Little has been thriving in that high role this season so far. We've seen those goals that she scored. We we saw that goal that she scored at the top of the box, just a quick turn and she was on goal. She's she's done a few solo goals inside the box. She's been thriving off that. Um, We'll get into it, but yeah, it was a bit of a strange one, that one. As Jesse mentioned during the game, you know, when something's working so well, like why why do you want to change it? Especially when you're when you're forcing a player like Kim Little to kind of drop into to something that's obviously so suits her and she's so Kim Little, so she's going to be amazing at the end of the day. But if it's working so well, why, why change it? And I guess Hoffenheim was a decent game to kind of try. It's decent opposition. But yeah, anyway, let's not get carried away with that. Um, but Arsenal were, were struggling to score for a bit. They had possession and control of the match, um, but it took a penalty from Kim Little to kind of get the scoring going. going. And obviously, 
Tobin Heath got her first Arsenal goal, an assist by Vivian Miedema with her head on top of that. Um, a really good finish. It was a kind of far post uh, header back into the box and Tobin Heath got it off the bounce in a volley. Easy enough. Really aesthetically pleasing goal when you see it. But Jesse, you had the pleasure of watching this match sitting next to me. What were your takeaways from this Arsenal, from this match, from an Arsenal and Hoffenheim perspective? My key takeaway was that Alex got a hot chocolate at halftime and it smelled really nice and I was really jealous. So that was that was everything I got from that. It was for for it to be from a football ground, it was pretty enjoyable to be fair. <laughs> um yeah, I thought it was really weird that Jonas Idaville said this was Arsenal's best game because I didn't think Arsenal looked great for like large portions of this match. I thought Hoffenheim's build-up play Arsenal really struggled to disrupt it in the way that they maybe managed to disrupt other teams' build-up plays so far this season. Um, I do think Hoffenheim are very good at that that portion of their game. They're not so good at getting the ball forward. Um, but I do also wonder if that Kim Little-Jordan knob switch had something to, to do with it. Um, I feel like Kim Little can be like a lot more front foot when it comes to pressing. But yeah, I felt like Arsenal were kind of, not lucky, because obviously they you know they, they won the penalty and the second goal was good, but they were able to be in the position where they were tuning up at half-time and they could then at that point kind of become a like counter-attacking side um I guess my worry would be that I felt like the kind of playing out from the back was like quite nervy a lot of the time like I didn't think Lost and Warburg Moy had a great game and it felt like it was really relatively easy for Hoffenheim to kind of win the the ball in that that kind of final third area they just weren't really able to do much about it um from a Hoffenheim perspective there were some like really good moments. Um, I thought they were a lot better in the second half. Tina Takagami had to go off at half time. I think she picked up a knock, but Gia Corley came on and I thought it made them a lot more dynamic. It felt like her and Eula Brown were able to like interchange a lot more and they were able to get a lot more out of Brand in, in, in the second half of the game. Whereas the first half, it was kind of like she was just running the channel on, on that left-hand side. Um, so yeah, I think Hoffenheim will be frustrated because this result really didn't do them as a team justice which which is a shame yeah it was we were definitely expecting a lot more especially how they how they are in the league um and how they kind of challenge those bigger teams but Abdullah what was a crucial change here for Arsenal after that Barcelona loss I think more I think for me the biggest I, I don't know if it's a change but more that I think they the, at least in the first half they were able to just hold the majority of possession I think Austin with the way they play coming up on the back and the way the way their players are in terms of their profile I feel like they kind of want to have the ball they want to have majority possession they want to be able to control the game and I think here at least in the first half you know getting the two goals and going up I think they were able to relatively control the game, use their midfielders, use your Jordan Nobbs and Kim Little to be able to get on the ball and really dictate play, you know, spray passes and and then kind of play in Miedema and, and then the wide players. I mean, we saw the um, the free kick that Beth Mead won in the first half. It was like movements like that and passes like that that I think allowed Arsenal to be able to really control the game. But I, I agree with Jesse to an extent. I think Hoffenheim really put up a, while they did lose by heavy scoreline, I felt like their overall play was still pretty decent. I think with a little bit of luck, a little bit better finishing, I really think that they could have made this uh, more competitive in terms of the scoreline. So it was, all right, Arsenal 1-4-0. Yes, they had some good finishing and they had some good moments uh, with the goals. But I, I really felt like Hoffenheim were relatively, were in that game and the scoreline doesn't, um, you know, uh, suggest that. But, you know, I think that would probably be a, my assessment. And again, we saw the changes Woman Moy and you know different front three and, and and all that. So I think the changes also a couple of players here and there would also make things a little bit different. 
And Hoffenheim's first match before this was against Koge, and it was a big 5 0 win, including a very worthy mention, a golazo from Katarina Nashenweng. I really hope I pronounced that right. It was an absolutely banger top of the box. She kind of faked the defender out without even touching the ball, and she just somehow just got it far post with the absolute banger. I mean, yeah, go on to zone and watch the highlights because that was definitely worth watching. But yeah, plus their win over Wolfsburg, and it says, you know, they're they're a good team. And I know, Jesse, you, you talked about it briefly before, but do you want to go more in detail? Um, you know, they had this pretty decent win of I've no win, and then they come to Arsenal and kind of underperform. What is it that they lacked coming in from the league from that match before into this Arsenal game? I think something that Hoffenheim really struggle with, and I think you've seen this in, in kind of lots of their bigger games this season, even in the Wolfsburg game, even though they won, is that they're, they really aren't great from like set piece situations you know they concede that the penalty to Arsenal from from a corner um, they concede the second goal from a free kick and so I think you know in the Koga game they were able to have like the vast vast majority of the ball um, they were able to like do their build up stuff create good opportunities and they scored them and I think the Arsenal game it was a combination of well they didn't have the ball they were of course like going to have to defend set pieces and they really struggle at them and then in combination with they actually weren't really able to take the the chances that, that opened up to them and you know this is like quite a young Hoffenheim side even in the Wolfsburg game again like Euler Brand had a number of like good chances to to put them them ahead earlier or even further ahead which she wasn't really able to take just like the wrong decisions here and there which is what you expect from like a 19 year old you know similarly Gia Corley like again has, has sometimes her decision making isn't great still so I think it's just a combination of, of a variety of those things that always going to be a team that that struggles because they have so much you know turnover of players like we're going to talk in a minute about um Tabia Vasmuf who like for years has been like one of their standout players and it's always going to be hard when you've got that kind of churn of talent going going through your team so you know I think what's really impressive is is how much they managed to keep turning over and how well they still managed to perform regardless so yeah I think you know against Arsenal it just felt like it really wasn't their day at all um but you know, I, I feel like in the return fixture, they'll probably still like take heart from how they at least played in that game and think, you know, you never know at home, like what you might be able to get out from that game. And now on to probably one of the most entertaining matches of the group stages so far. Chelsea three, Wolfsburg three. Pretty harder, Sam Kerr, Bethany England versus Tabia Wasmuth, Brace and Joe Ward haunting Chelsea in a way she could never with Arsenal. An entertaining match to watch, tense all the way to the end. As a neutral, this was probably really, really, really fun. I enjoyed it more than Jesse did. That's a fact. Uh, I was going for Wolfsburg, so I kind of I didn't enjoy it when Chelsea equalized, and then again, Ch- Jesse did. But of course, Peniel Harder saved Chelsea and Emma Hayes again. She'll do it again in the next Champions League match too. But she got an equalizer in the 92nd minute. Not too bad. But yeah, we talked about it last season in the Champions League, how much joy Wolfsburg were having on the wings and how strong they were playing through there, playing it through the wing and the cross and, and everything. But now, of course, none of their goals were necessarily from open play because it was three mistakes Three goals. Jesse, how much of this was down to that back three? Yeah, it's a funny one because you're like, when players are making individual errors, is this a systemic issue? Um, And I feel like we've always known that like 
elements of Chelsea's defence are susceptible to, to individual errors at points. Um, and Katrenberger is often, I feel like, every, you know, half a season drew a bit of a strange one playing out from the back. Uh, Jess Carter always makes mistakes just all the time. Um, and But Magda Eriksson's one was a bit of a surprise. Um, I think it's it speaks to a general nervousness among those players about the system that they're playing uh-huh. in. And I feel like it kind of shows uh, why the system hasn't like hugely clicked. Well, that's not to say that it can't still click. Um, I also feel like generally Chelsea just have massive Champions League nerves, which I just don't understand. I thought when we got to the final, that would like deal with it, but it seems like it hasn't at all. Um, I will say Hoffenheim, not Hoffenheim, Wolfsburg took all three of those goals incredibly well, which was also really, really frustrating because I think in a different game, those three mistakes definitely don't lead to three goals. They were incredibly clinical. But yeah, a really frustrating game just because in the first 15 minutes, Chelsea were just so on top and they they got so rattled uh, so quickly. And yeah, really, really unnecessary. That second Wasmuth goal from the wing where she just curled it around anchoring burger as if nothing that that is actually so hard that angle was absolutely ridiculous and she just hit it first time with so much power and that curve just hit on the side netting like that was just brilliant I mean yeah like it was a mistake but that finish should not be underestimated that it was really hard to get into that that far corner um but Abdullah where did Wolfsburg have joy in this match in particular? Yes, three mistakes led to Wolfsburg three goals. And might I say that Lena Oberdorf was the one that turned over and assisted that Joe Ward goal? <clears throat> yeah. But Wolfsburg definitely had their opportunities and dominance in certain periods of the game. It's not like it, it was just like these three opportunities were all they had. Um, they still played their football. They, they were still able to gain a bit of rhythm at a certain point. Uh, I think for like 15, 20 minutes, they had really good possession over Chelsea. But yeah, where, where did the Wolfsburg kind of get a bit of joy over Chelsea in this match? I think, um, no, I think I think with them, is, I think what really stood out was their, I mean, not completely, but I think their pressing and counter-pressing was pretty decent. Um, I, I think you can, while the three goals, we can say we're down to definitely major, majorly, you know, uh, individual mistakes. But I feel like the presence of the of the Wolfsburg players coming in behind, you saw, you saw the Jess Carter pass back, you know, she had uh, a player pressing onto her. You saw the Linovidov uh, counter-pressing, like you said, that, that that leads to that goal. She's the one who's pressing the play and wins the ball back. Um, and I think I think there were still times when, uh, when, when Wolfsburg had a couple of chances down the wings as well where, where they took advantage. I think in those short burst spells, they were just able to, it's just like their plan went right. They were able to press, they were able to counter press and they were able to kind of hold onto the ball uh, quite well. I mean, there was one move, I think in the second half, Tavia Wesmuth has it on right wing. She cuts inside, goes past, I think it's Magda Eriksson to curl the shot into the top left and it gets it gets saved by Anne Ketchenberger. But I feel like that was, you know, that was an excellent chance. And I think they were, in a sense, they were, they were really they were good at creating a couple of those chances here and there. Obviously they need to take them. I mean, they got three goals at the end of the day through mistakes, but if keep the mistakes aside, they need to take one or two more of those chances. But if they can keep creating them, 
and taking advantage of Chelsea in the wide areas. I don't think they, uh, you know, I think I think they probably next time if they can do a repeat of that, they could probably score. But no, I think I think realistically what stood out was their pressing, counter-pressing. And even then, while it wasn't the, directly what led to their goal, I think it did play a factor in making those individual mistakes that, that Chelsea had. And Jesse, looking at this from outside a, a Chelsea fan perspective, what were your thoughts on this scoreline? Well... I like I thought Wolfsburg were pretty rubbish to be honest. So I think from a Chelsea perspective, this is like a really frustrating. This is massively two points dropped because I really didn't feel like Wolfsburg created almost anything aside from those mistakes. Okay, because the mistakes happened, maybe that's a game state thing. Wolfsburg feel like they can want to defend their lead. They were obviously three one up at one point, but I felt like as soon as Chelsea went one 0 up they should have really walked the rest of this game. Now they're in a position where they rode to Wolfsburg and win, which is just a position they did not need to be in at all. They could have <laughs> hopefully gone through the group and, and been in a position where, you know, now they've got an away win at Juventus. If they'd had the home win at Wolfsburg, you'd have been looking at a really like pretty nice run of fixtures. And now there's like, way more pressure on them and you even saw it in the away game at Juventus I feel like the pressure was just ramped up because they knew like the victory was you had to get those three points um so I feel like it was a really disappointing result for the team I guess the positive you take away from it is yeah Chelsea never quit um it is kind of crazy how you you do genuinely feel like when you watch this team if they just need to get one more goal there, there's always something to come from somewhere. And like, I felt like both both the goals, the second and third goal was kind of scrappy. Um, but, you know, ultimately it's testament to the mentality and the level of the players that are in that team that they don't ever feel like they they switch off. Um, they don't ever believe that, that they're not going to get back there. I feel like it'd be so easy for a team to be 3-1 down against one of their biggest European rivals and be like, damn, we fucked it. And then that's it. And then just go... Uh, and also, I would just like to give a shout out because I feel like it got lost in all of the madness that happened afterwards. But Sam Kerr's opener was absolutely immense. It was like an incredible goal, probably one of the best goals I've seen her score for Chelsea. Um, and I felt sorry for her that then the defence just like mucked everything up and kind of took took away from the sheen. But yeah, I think it was a really ridiculous three goals for Chelsea to concede, a ridiculous position to put themselves in. And honestly, I don't know like what Emma Hayes does at this point because it feels like whatever formation she plays, these like mistakes, you know, keep keep on happening. And I do think it's as much of an anxiety thing as I feel like Chelsea feel like they have to be on the back foot to reach their peak performance level, which isn't the position they should be in. Your Champions League finalists, you know, okay, you got blown away by Barcelona, but you blew away like a number of other teams to get to that position. Like you should play like that, you know, not like the team you were three years ago where you were struggling to get the semifinals because you were the underdogs. That is fair to say. And yeah, Wolfsburg did go on to beat Servets uh, 5-0, which would obviously be, be a good one for them. But yeah, that's the other game they played. And of course, Chelsea went on to play Juventus and Emma Hayes took on Joe Montemurol yet again. An absolute brilliant goal from Barbara Bonsea, Bonansea. I mean, it was the assist was just as good as the finish, although the finish was maybe a bit more just exquisite. A beautifully floated ball from Valentina Chernoya. 
it just fell into the path of Boransan and Boransan just had to volley it inside of the foot into the bottom corner. And just all of it was just beautiful. Um, and yes, of course, Aaron Cuthbert's solo goal was also pretty decent, but I think that was just down to Juventus defense, just pretty much making a path for her and inviting her to have a shot on target pretty much. Um, but yeah, that, that Bonanzeo goal was absolutely amazing. This this Juventus goal, I've thought, I've repeated it and I've spoken to a couple people about it, just analyzing tidily. This was almost most definitely a result of that path three. Um, Abdullah, do you want to elaborate and give your opinion on, on this Juventus goal? So as you were speaking, I just I had the, I had the goal uh, I have the goal open here on uh, on 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 YouTube. I was looking at the highlights again. Shout out to Alex to Zone, but no, I was having a look again, and I, I'm looking at it here, and I've just paused it just as the cross is coming in, right? And I and I'm looking at the positioning of the back three, and I think the back three are relatively close together. And you have Aaron Cuspers, who's also very very narrow, and then the only player who's kind of kind of completely, if you can call it, out of position is is Guru right now on the left-hand side and she's got like a half a yard on uh, uh, Bonansea, sorry, has half a yard on, on, on Guru right. And so when the cross is perfectly floated, and I feel like Bonansea's timing is it's, uh, per- perfect. Now, I think if you really look at the the way the goal could have been stopped. I feel like if Magda Eriksson was a few yards to the left, I think she can cover that. She can cover that Bonanza run, maybe get in a block if she is there. And I think we've talked about this before. I think the reason maybe Eriksson is so close into that middle is not only to to block the run of the striker, but I think it's 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 that lack of trust in, in Jess Carter to be able to handle the, the central striker. So I think if Eriksson say, for example, it was somebody else at center center back, that, that center back can say, say it's Millie Bright. She Erickson knows that she, Millie Bright can handle the, the center back in a 1v1. Maybe then Erickson, you know, is two, three yards to her left, and maybe then she can get in the block or, or get an interception and, and not let the cross get to uh, Bonansea on the volley. And I think, honestly, I think that's where the reason comes, but nothing to take away from Bonansea's run. I think it was perfectly timed. I think the cross was perfectly timed as well. And then, you know, it just ends up being the first goal. Yeah, I definitely agree that Magda's positioning wasn't the greatest because of that trust and perhaps just like a bit, again, what Jesse touched, that anxiety of, you know, things going terribly wrong because of, you know, Carter's um, history with mistakes in important situations like this. Um, and yeah, you know, Guru Wrighton, as much as an amazing player, all hail Guru Wrighton, as good as she is, you know, she's not a defender and that run... It was just hard to track, but Jesse, you know, Juventus showed up to the occasion. Um, I think obviously we all agree that Chelsea were always going to win probably, but they did have, you know, they, they had some very clear opportunities that they just couldn't really finish at all. Um, obviously not as many as Chelsea did, but they did still have a, a quite a few good ones. Um, uh, Lina Hurtig uh, in particular messed up a lot of her opportunities, which is really disappointing. Um, but what do they do so well? You can look at it as from a Juventus perspective, also as a Chelsea perspective. Um, but what did what did Juventus and, and Joe Montemurro get a little bit right here? Yeah, I thought, you know, even though Lina Hurtig wasn't great when she was in front of goal, but I, what I thought they did really well was the way they got Hurtig to run at Chelsea's defenders slash run in between them which felt like it really like forced them to make quite early decisions based on her runs which you know when we're talking about you know Magda Eriksson maybe not being in the position where you know like I just don't think you can blame go right in for that goal because if you're playing in a wing back system the whole point is you have three centre backs there to to deal with with that exact situation but if your centre back's so distracted by 
the run of one other player in fact if all three of your center backs are so distracted by that you're going to open yourself up to problems and that was something that i felt like juventus were really clever about doing because those runs weren't going in the same places she wasn't going through the same two players every time she was like looking to go between bright and carter carter and erickson bright and cuthbert like so it felt like that left Chelsea guessing a lot. I also thought Juventus like just kept their defensive shape really well. They didn't offer Chelsea much space in that midfield. In fact, the only time they just seemed to forget that they were supposed to be defending was for the Cuthbert goal, um, where it felt like everyone was just like, who's meant to be picking up this player? Is it you? Is it you? And just left loads of space for her to run into. Um, but otherwise, I thought they they did that really well. They were you know, Frank Kirby really, really struggled to get on on the ball for lots of lots of the game. Um, you know, you saw Neil Harder having to, you know, this is the kind of move she makes, but like drop all around the pitch to, to pick up the ball and get on it. And in fact, actually, Chelsea's second goal was really the only time where you saw those three of Harder, Kirby and Kerr like link up play. And obviously the ball kind of bounces around the box and, and Harder actually ends up finishing. Um, but yeah, I, I think Juventus are a really good team. I'm really intrigued to see what their their games against Wolfsburg look like because I think Chelsea made Wolfsburg look good through the errors, but I think Juventus look good in <laughs> this game off their own back. And I think that's actually going to be um, a surprisingly even matchup between those two sides, which could also do Chelsea a big favour, to be honest, if that is the case. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, they've got some really, really strong players in, in that side. And, you know, Joe Montemuro might not be a good manager against Emma Hayes, but he is broadly quite a good manager. Um, so, yeah, I think that those Wolfsburg-Juventus games will be a lot of fun. Yeah, I was quite happy that um, just Italian women's football got to be broadcasted just a little bit um, against a team like Chelsea. Italian women's football, it's obviously a lot harder to follow but the players if you look at the Italian national team you know the players their top players are really really good you know you have Fonanzea finishing these volleys as of nothing um, and obviously they're not really kind of a household name any like at all because a lot of people don't know um, but in terms of football and, and everything you know Italian football women's football is growing in a really really interesting and really good direction I think um, so I was kind of happy at, and it will be interesting to see how Juventus fares against Wolfsburg, definitely. But Abdullah, uh, for you, was there something that impressed you about Juventus uh, in this match? Uh, what impressed me about Wolfsburg, uh, Wolfsburg Juventus, uh, I think, was their overall approach to, their, to the game. I think I, I was surprised at, at their, the, if anything, I was surprised at their consistency of how good they were throughout the 19 minutes. I think their game plan, obviously, Montemur is a fantastic coach. We've seen his quality in, in the WSL. Um, but I think their their quality throughout, I think there, there was a clear game plan and it was working, especially with the crosses. I felt like they, they really, um, I mean, if I, I mean, really, I think probably one of the few teams this season that has been able to really take advantage of like pure crosses and and be able to kind of get into, uh, get, get at Chelsea's back line and, and you know maybe take like we said take, take take advantage of that of those trust issues maybe the back three back five has um but I, I feel like I feel like the overall play every, everything from I think the fullbacks from an attacking point of view especially at right back I think I think uh, I think Lundorf is her name if I'm not wrong um she played really well uh going forward I felt like you know touching on Jesse's point on, on Lena Hertzig and her movement and being able to you know make Chelsea's defenders make those decisions I think that in itself allowed 
allowed Bonanza and then the other, any any other all the other attackers that came on and played around uh, around over there. I think it gave them the space to be able to maneuver in the half space, get in those crosses, and you know give them time to do all of that. So and take advantage in those in those interior channels. So. I think probably that would be my my, my main takeaway. Is just how co- I say cohesive in a in, in a in a not not completely cohesive, but I think in a in a way in the peers that they did have uh, chances. I felt like those moves were well constructed and they they had a lot of joy. And I think kind of like I said, I'm excited for the Wolfsburg game because realistically there, there's there's a very good chance that Juventus actually the ones that go through instead of Wolfsburg and I don't think we might have said that you know a few weeks ago so I think yeah Juventus have really surprised me and um, I'm excited to see them play Definitely and yeah worth noting that Juventus's first Champions League match was a 3-0 win over Servette um, and again another goal shout I feel like there's going to be a lot of these throughout the, the entire episode but a ridiculously good finish from Ariana Caruso and it was again a long ball just floating perfectly over the top. Ariana Caruso just kind of went into it. It reminded me of um, Sergi Roberto's goal against PSG to complete that Champions League comeback um, a few years ago. It was the same concept. It was just a ball chipped over, floated perfectly, and she kind of just stretched and deflected the ball just perfectly over the keeper um, into the back of the net. So yeah, again, worth going on the zone to watch that. But Jesse, last question about Chelsea before we move on. At the end of this match, Emehe has reverted back to that back four. Maybe because, I don't know, nerves again of maybe conceding a late goal and, and not wanting to to draw and drop points again. Um, but one to explore more of, of European and what are your thoughts of potentially having Chelsea and Emehe revert back to that back four and kind of your thoughts and problems? I know a couple of them. Uh, Guru Wrighton. Um, but what are what are your your kind of conflicts and and thought process behind all this? Yeah, where does Guru Wrighton go? That's the number one question keeping me up at night. Um, I think broadly, I think I'd be really surprised if we see this, if we see a reversion to, to the back four. To me, it just seems like uh none of the issues that led Hayes to switch from the four to the three have been resolved. So why would you, if you started the season playing a three, then go back to the four? I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong. She could have just decided the three doesn't work at all. But um, I've been kind of looking at a piece on this. And actually, interestingly, if you look at the underlying numbers, Chelsea's expected goals against um, in a back three is a, is quite a lot lower than than it was in a back four. So if you're looking at the stuff going on, maybe behind the actual concessions, um, technically the back three does defend better. I think really the, the question is, is are Chelsea as good going forward with it? I kind of felt at the start of the season that it allowed more to get out of Penila Harder by playing her in that front three line. But I kind of now also think she's just like having a baller season. So it probably doesn't matter where you play her at this moment of time because it just feels like she's running so hot right now and it feels like she really suits and fits this team and has just become such a leader almost overnight. But I think maybe this is more where Hayes just wants to get to generally. And also maybe this is a clue on why she keeps playing Jess Carter because this is what this allows you to do because Jess Carter is a right back. So it allows you to switch stuff up very easily if that is what you want to do you know Jess Carter came out of the middle of the defence and then and then went back to right back when Cuthbert went off and then you kind of boost your attack you know Jesse Fleming came on um, and you kind of get this extra attacking player there which if you're drawing with 30 minutes to go it's quite a sensible decision to make and quite a useful thing to be able to do if your team can have that kind of tactical fluidity 
So I feel like maybe Hayes just wants to be able to move between these formations with ease. The only problem is, is if you do that, is then go right and de facto becomes your left back, uh, which I don't know how clever an idea that is long term, especially against better teams. Um, but if you're really going for it and you feel like you're in control of the ball, which Chelsea probably were by this last 30, 25 minutes of this Juventus game, then it doesn't really have to matter. Um, but no, I don't think we're going to see the back for long term. Um, I think we'll persist with the back three for longer. And I mean, who knows? Maybe the return of Maren Mielder, maybe John Anderson plays a way back into Emma Hayes' good books. All of these things could have different factors. I still think the main problem with the back three isn't the system. It is who plays in the system. And I think Chelsea have solutions to that. It's just when Hayes wants to actually maybe go with those solutions a bit more. Yeah, I definitely agree. That will be interesting once Maren Mielder is fully fit and gets herself back into that starting eleven. what's going to happen necessarily. I do agree that, yeah, Chelsea do have the personnel to kind of play off both systems but then it's again you know do you want a proper fullback and then lose a wingback like Gura in for example or Aaron Cuthbert who I think has been playing really well in that position as well or do you just want actual stability and then you have you know someone we don't really see a lot which is a bit disappointing but Neve Charles you know another like wide player obviously not naturally a fullback but another wide player that can do the overlapping do the the wingback position really really well probably um so it'll be interesting what see what happens um going forward um but we'll move on to psg 5-0 against kharkiv jordan Wittema, a first hat uh first half hat trick uh dudek and kelly fee Khalifi scored also, but good ones for PSG in this group stage so far. Um, they also won 2-0 against Breida Blik from Iceland. That I don't know why that, that name is really fun to say, I think. I don't know if anyone else agrees with that, but Breida Blik, I'm probably not really pronouncing it the way it's supposed to be, but it's fine. Of course, one of the biggest things from us was Jordan Wittema's, you know, hat trick. <laughs> PSG attack is really interesting because then you have, you know, you have Katoto Diani, um, Baltimore, and then on the other half of it, you have Jordan Wittema and, and Ramona Bachman who bring completely different style of plays to PSG. But Abdullah, how do you see this PSG side faring in the rest of the group stage and maybe beyond that and um, now that you've seen them play a couple of games in the Champions League now that I've seen them play uh I think it's I think it's it's interesting to see I think they haven't done I'm okay I think relatively to the fact that they've played two opposition that they were expected to win against so I don't think we need to get too carried away but I felt like their overall play was was pretty decent you know especially in that in that car game last week where I think um with a chain side I think they played they played some pretty good football I think uh, Jordan Hirama she she obviously got a hat-trick and you know she's always been you know, she's always kind of been in around the, the fringes of the first team. Obviously, when you've got Marie Antoinette Katoto in front of you, who scores like 20, 30 goals a season, it's very difficult to be able to get a run of games and, and play there. Uh, however, I think I think she showed some quality. I think going forward for the rest of the group, you know, in I think that Real Madrid game might just be, will be, I think, I think they'll come through that now. I think the way they've played, I think they can. But although at the same time, I think it'll also be the perfect test for them because Real Madrid maybe domestically haven't been great, but in the Champions League, in both games, I think they've been decently impressive. They've, they've been able to defend really well. And um, I think I'd be, I'd be interested to see how this attack does against that Real Madrid defense, because I think ultimately that's what it's going to come down to. Kind of shout out to Celine Bizet Ilhutsoy. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I think she's one of the new players that's come in really hyped. I think she's a really, really good player. And I think in a couple of years time, we're going to be talking about her as one of the top 
uh, you know, top players in in in, in women's football. Um, you know, I'd be excited to see her play start the next game. But uh, yeah, I think they've got some excited attacking options. I think they've shown some some good uh, some good form. And and kind of one more thing, Leah Khalifi. I think she's she's kind of made her breakthrough season this season uh, in a sense where she's getting a lot more playtime, and she's just really eccentric, dynamic attacking midfielder. Now she's actually gotten a couple of goals from the first two games. So I actually can see there's a shot for her to start the next game against Real Madrid. So I think she's one to keep an eye out on for uh, for people that are going to catch that game. Yeah, and going off of you know that, that rotation of players, players they've lost, players they brought in, the different style of players. I think it's really intriguing the amount of players that PSG has and how different they are to each other individually and personality and just character of it. It's really interesting. But Jesse. Is this PSG side impressing you, you know, that turnover of players, the, the different personalities, as I, as I just mentioned, or do you think they're just right where they should be? Yeah, I think they recruited really well, given who they lost. Um, as you mentioned, kind of, Alex, that attacking front three has stayed in place. And, you know, I think we've said it before that you've got to have their, those three up there as, as one of the best attacking trios in women's football. And then, you know, even with the players that they... They did lose, um, particularly in, a, in the more defensive positions. I feel like everyone they've brought in just like makes a lot of sense. You know, like Amanda Ilstedt, I think she was like um, an interesting option for maybe a number of teams. Stephanie Labay as well is like a pretty like decent replacement as goalkeepers go, which is like a notoriously hard position to recruit for, I think, within women's football. So, yeah, I think I think they have impressed and they don't seem like they feel you know, rattled by the fact that they won the league, their manager moved on, loads of their players moved on. It feels like they've still managed to keep this transition quite seamless, which, you know, is a tricky thing to do. It's interesting. We're obviously seeing Barcelona do something very, very similar as well. But I've been impressed with the way both teams have kind of like handled that almost, it feels like, without batting an eyelid. Obviously, the Real Madrid game will be, again, a more interesting test but I feel like PSG should definitely feel pretty confident about being able to to win those games um, and I think that will like set them up really really nicely for what comes next obviously PSG we do keep mentioning that PSG play Real Madrid it also is worth mentioning that the next game that every team plays they have to play that same game in obviously the reverse picture in the next week um, so the next kind of Women's Champions League window in November will be two consecutive weeks of the same exact matchup, just in different cities. Um, so it is going to be really interesting to see just how teams in general fare with a back-to-back game against against a Champions League opponent. Um, but yeah, we're going to go on to Real Madrid now, who won 5-0 against Braille Blake. Caroline Muller, hat-trick. Wow. I mean... Yes, wow. Um, Olga Carmona and Lorena Navarro also scored. But yeah, I mean, Real Madrid have to play PSG. Obviously, we keep mentioning that, um, which should be an interesting match on paper. I am really intrigued by Real Madrid right now because they sit fourth from bottom in the Primera Iberdrola with just one win from seven in the league. And that one win just came last weekend. So they lost, you know, they haven't won six consecutive games before that. But then in the Champions League, they knocked out Manchester City. Yes, I snuck that in there again. And they're two ones for two. So it, it just feels like a double personality in their Champions League games and then in their league games. So it's really intriguing uh, Real Madrid just in general. But Jesse, you touched upon it there. PSG should be confident, but could Real Madrid push them maybe a bit further like they did in Man City and potentially get the win at the end of the day? 
I feel like I would be surprised. I mean, I think Real Madrid have the quality to push them, but I think it's fair to say PSG are a level above Man City right now. Um, I just feel like PSG have a really good combination of great attack going forward and a really experienced defense. So I would be really surprised if Real Madrid were able to win either of these matches, the only caveat I will say to that is um, the kind of interesting wrinkle with both of these back-to-back games is that PSG play Lyon um, in the middle of them. And Lyon obviously have their back-to-back games with Bayern as well. And I believe Bayern play Wolfsburg in the middle too. So I think those league fixtures could have really interesting impacts on squad choices, um, mentality of the players, um, kind of what people want to do you know for it's going to be really interesting I think to see how much people assess the value in coming first in this group I think because there are quite clearly I'm going to say six to seven teams who are going to almost certainly go through what value do people place on trying to avoid Barcelona I guess would be my question because for me I'd put it high on my priority list but maybe people are willing to take that risk I don't know so I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. And something worth mentioning for PSG, which I don't think it would be a terribly big uh, injury for the moment, but Keira Hamraoui is obviously back with PSG and, and it has, I mean, we've talked about it on this podcast before, she's a high quality player and she is injured at the moment. She had to retire from the France national team. Um, so it would be interesting to see because obviously that, that six role, I think is one of our favorite positions on the pitch on this podcast I think we know how important it is and if you don't have the right personnel on that one it's not good it's just not going to click going defensively and attackly so I am curious to see obviously I hope she's not out for too long but I'm curious to see how PSG kind of drop off in in a level of that player um but yeah I mean I'm definitely looking forward to that and it should be a really good match um hopefully more really good goals from Real Madrid because they've been scoring some bangers especially that um caroline molo girl one of the first one on her hat trick it was against the robles cross her first touch was just impeccable basically just brought it down in the box as if like no one was around her and then off her first touch just absolutely blasted into the back of the net again worth going to see just go watch it and and just enjoy um but moving on to the other french side leon leon five benfica nil um obviously Melvin Malad bicycle kick, notable. Um, she had all the time in the world to also bring the ball down and she just decided to do an overhead kick because why not? Um, Daniel Vandenock scored, Kadisha Buchanan scored twice and Macario scored a penalty, which I thought was interesting that she was taking to begin with. But yeah, in, in the first match, uh, Leon being hacked beat Hacken at 3-0. A good one for Lyon, but, you know, in both of the matches in the Champions League. Christian and Lair, always going to be a favorite of this podcast. Uh, two clean sheets so far. And Ada Hegerberg said that she's a signing of the summer. So I'll take that. Jesse, are, you know, obviously another uh, another team that has a big turnover of players and recruited, I would say smartly. I, mean, I think a lot of people would disagree potentially with the players that they brought in, but I think it was kind of that, that flip that they needed. They got exactly what they needed in the positions that they needed, if that makes sense. But do you think that Leon are back to where they needed to be or want to be? Yeah, I don't watch probably enough of Leon to judge this off the level of games that I've seen them play. 
I thought against Hacken they were good, but also Hacken had kind of good opportunities. And maybe we'll come on to it in this buying game as well. But I feel like Hacken can just be like masters of their own downfall in quite a frustrating way if you're watching them. Um, yeah, I mean, Abdullah's probably the guy to ask on this because for me, I just don't really understand like what the massive change has been. Like, I know some players are coming back from fitness, but it doesn't really feel like they're totally integrated in the team yet. I know there's been some new signings who've like worked really well, but yeah, it feels like maybe it's more just like Leon needed to get rid of the manager to like feel they could move on and, and like get going again. Um, but yeah, as I say, Abdullah is probably the better guy to speak speak to on this than me because I feel like until I see them play a actually good team, then I can't really judge what what they're doing. Apart from I will shout out Katarina Macario because she's really really cool to watch and I love watching her play. She so. is a really good player indeed. But Abdullah, let's go experts. Um, having the book and all, uh, is there something still missing from this Leon side? And what do you think about Sonia Pastor so far? And kind of yeah, what is is Leon back to where they need to be? I think there's a. I think I'm going to start by saying that there's a couple of questions need to be answered. I think I agree with Jessica and say I think they still need to play top quality opposition. I, I'm still waiting for the Bayern game to come around to kind of see all the good positive signs that we've seen so far and if they've come together. Kind of on 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 the point about the defense and and kind of where why the hacking game seemed a little bit closer than it was until they started scoring the goals is they've been unlucky with defensive injuries like. You know, when Buchanan and, and Wendy Renard started the season, they were fine. And then as Grigio and Bok came back into, into, you know, being cleared to start getting into the squads and getting minutes, Wendy Renard gets injured. Now she's been injured for a couple of weeks. So then it was Buchanan and um, and then I think it was Amadine Henri who then moved into centre-back. And then, you know, over the weekend, we saw 18-year-old Alice Sombath come in at centre-back to play alongside Henri. So there's been there's been no consistency at the back with between the two centre-backs. And I think that's what the problem has been. Now, once... Uh, Renard is back to full fitness and Bok gets a few, you know, more minutes under her belt. I think once we start seeing those two, that pairing back together, or even you put Buchanan in there, because she's been equally as good, I think you will then start seeing Leon be a lot more defensively solid. But till till these injuries persist, you're going to be seeing a Kanamadine on replaying at centre-back, which obviously isn't her natural position. So... I, I think even I think that'll be that'll be a test for them against uh, Bayern if by that point not one of them has come back to full fitness and, and played minutes. Um, where are they now under Sonia Bumpster? I think I think they're in a much better place than they were under Jean Luc Pastor. I think there's been this you can see a change in in the way the players are are playing. It almost feels like and obviously I, I mean obviously I don't know I'm not in the dressing room but it almost feels like the players are listening to Sonia more than they were listening to the previous two managers. It was almost felt like the previous two managers were there to kind of set the team out, take training, set it, and then just kind of the players were like, okay, we're going to control this game and we're going to go out and play. It was almost like Zidane, uh, Real Madrid and Zidane, where the players were the ones who made the decisions and kind of just, he set the team out and did the man management, but the players made the thing. I think Sonia is the opposite now where she's getting her tactics in there. She's You can see a complete shift in the way that they're playing in terms of a tactical identity. I can see, okay, this is what she's trying to do versus when Vasur was there. Okay, fine, you overpower teams, but then when it really came down to it, what were you trying to change? It was very a lot of like-to-like substitutions, like-to-like substitutions. So 
so far so good. I'm happy with the with the way that's coming in. I think a, a couple. Of, I think there's a little bit more faith in the younger players now. You see, like Alisson Bath came on at halftime for uh, for 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 you know there was an injury to Demar, so she came on, moved into centre back. You know, uh, with Buchanan went on, removed into midfield. So. And Ada being back is huge. I mean, she's been playing minutes in the Champions League. More minutes she gets. And then the, when she gets into full fitness, I think that's a huge boost going forward. And Millard, I think, has been the player so far for me. She's been scoring in every game. Her and Macario, that kind of combination has been unreal. I didn't think that would be uh, something that we, you know, that we that we'd seen so far. But yeah, surprise back to the season for me. So obviously Leon have to play Bayern Munich next. Um and a disappointing goalless draw for Bayern in their first match against Benfica, who have to, I have to say as debutants in the Champions League and as kind of Portuguese league obviously isn't as strong as, as the other ones. It is up and coming though. But Benfica have actually really impressed me with their football. Um I think they're really daring considering how how much of an underdog they are against any opposition, I think. Um, but then again, and worth mentioning also in the highlights, uh, Leah Schuller missed an absolutely ridiculous goal. She was kind of, she was really close to the goal and, and the ball just kind of deflected off a player. And for some reason, again, she decided to just fully try. A, it wasn't even a bicycle kick. I don't think you can just call it that. It was just like a karate like martial arts kind of overhead kick um, and a one off the post, uh, the crossbar, sadly. But yeah, of course, Bayern redeems, redeemed themselves in the second match against Hacken, a 4-0 win. But of course, next, they have Lyon back-to-back. So it should be a testimony to them, I think, as well as much as Lyon, as we mentioned. And it is worth noting that Wolfs- well, you know, Wolfsburg, we did mention, lost to Hoff- Hoffenheim in the league. Bayern lost 3-2 to Frankfurt. So... As Wolfsburg got points, so did Bayern Munich. Um, but Jesse, are you convinced of this Bayern side or do you think they've dropped a bit of momentum um, considering how well they did last season? Yeah, it does kind of feel like that. You know, Leah Schuler, like I know she missed that goal, but she's been in like pretty good form for Bayern and Germany. But yeah, these like past couple of games, it feels like they're interspersing kind of some really good results with some really, really poor ones. Um, they kind of beat Hoffenheim last weekend as part of Hoffenheim's like awful run of fixtures but even then there there were points where it felt like a bit rocky for them and and the nil-nil with Benfica was was very strange because I think yeah Benfica are a good team but Bayern should clearly be beating them I think even here with this game it felt like I kind of mentioned it earlier but it felt like Hecken really played into Bayern's hands and it was really disappointing like just some of the defensive decisions being made just made it really really easy for Bayern I'd actually started watching this instead of Barcelona Koga thinking that this would be the more even game and like promptly had to switch over within like the first 10 minutes but yeah I don't know like maybe it's just the extra games for Bayern maybe it's the the pressure that kind of comes from this young team obviously being kind of champions of the German division maybe they've got Chelsea-itis and feel upset about the way that they got dumped out of the Champions League last year and have now kind of got that like albatross around their neck um, I think this is clearly a really good side it just feels like they can't quite string together the consistency and that kind of mental conviction that, that I was talking about with Chelsea that belief that you score no matter what you you keep going no matter what you don't kind of I know Chelsea concede ridiculous goals but you know buying conceding those two goals in like the last four minutes to, to Frankfurt was just like ridiculous ridiculous you know so 
yeah, I, I don't really know what's what's going on there. It, it all feels a bit like lots of unluckiness. But as we tend to know in football, unluckiness tends to stem stem from somewhere else. But I'm not sure I figured out where exactly it's coming from right now. And Abdullah, your thoughts on Bayern and how Bayern versus Leon is going to go? I think it'll be interesting. I mean, just kind of going on what Jesse was just saying with the Bayern side being unlucky, and it's, that's not you know you know that and that their performances aren't as good as as we've normally seen them. Um, I think that just makes the the two back to back games against Leon very very interesting because we've seen Leon who were slowly gaining momentum. They're getting pieces of their team back together. There's you know there's partnerships building across the pitch. You know Demars I think is playing really well. I talked about the Mollard Macario combination. The Ada Hegelberg's coming back. So. That versus a set, in a sense, it's a settled Bayern side. The, the team is largely the same, and maybe this three-week break with you know with the international break that's coming up now, I think maybe that gives them time to recharge and just kind of get their heads back together after a rough period. Um, and I think that just gives both sides um, you know a fresh start in the sense that okay. And I think by that point we will know to at least to some extent which team is serious and which team could really go ahead and and do well you know for the rest of the women's champions league because these are two heavyweights these are two teams that have you know Bayern were semi-finalists last year uh Leon obviously have won five champions league back to back so I'm kind of I'm really excited for this game because I think more than anybody else I think they're I think they're evenly matched in in some regard right now so you know overall I think we're in for two extremely good back-to-back um weeks of football between these two and that concludes our Women's Champions League episode. Um, obviously quite short considering how much we could have kept talking. But um, yes, the next kind of window for Champions League is November 9th. November 9th and 10th obviously split across two. And then the next week, November 17th and November 18th. And a reminder that these match days include Juventus Wolfsburg, PSG Real Madrid, uh, Leon Byron, or probably the, the top, top ones. Barcelona Hoffenheim could be interesting in theory. Colgate Arsenal, obviously Colgate kind of exploited Barcelona a little bit. So it could be interesting. Um, maybe a few moments there against Arsenal. But yeah, um, we will have another Champions League episode after that. So probably towards the end of November in four weeks. That really sounds like so far away from right, right now. But yeah, you can keep up to date with our latest episodes, uh, WSL Women's Champions League, on Twitter at BoxBoxWSL. Um, so make sure you give us a follow there and then check out our personal Twitters too. And we do want to say a really big thank you to everyone who voted for us in the Football Content Awards. We won bronze. Yay! Although Jesse did point out that that the person who won gold is doesn't even do women's football. She's just a woman who does football, mainly men's, like lower league. Um, so by default, we gave ourselves uh, silver and Tim Stumman won gold. Yay! So we're, we're giving ourselves silver on this on this occasion. But we, we really appreciate everyone who listened to the pod, who voted for us and continues to support us with this podcast. Again, it's just something that we really weirdly enjoy doing every single week, just talking to each other about women's football. But yeah, thank you again. And we'll speak soon after this international break. Bye-bye. See you later.